0: Step through the twilight lands with me. Through the darkening sunlight, come with me. If you let your eyes adjust, you'll follow the light of the old ones. They've come to dance by the straight tracks. It isn't far to go. You're walking along with me now. I'm guiding the way. This is my land. My domain. The Bear's Grove, they call this place. Sacred it is to life and light. See the tower with the standard of the golden bear. Come past the forge and well, past the mine and spire. Come now to the hall they built of old. The old stories crowd around in the firelight waiting to be told. Be welcome round this hearth and hold. I bid you welcome to this, the seventh episode of the Bears Grove. My name is Sam Chupp, and I am very glad you're listening to me. Coming up tonight, we have the Kids Corner, where we'll talk about how you can put on a LARP for your kids at home. Then we have a new segment I call the Game Designer's Workbench. This week at the bench, we begin our series on how to design a game world by starting out with a segment I like to call a Creator's Toolkit. Moving on, we'll have our religion and gaming segment called Divine Inspiration. This week, we'll be talking about how to make a fantastic or speculative religion more realistic. In the Romance and Gaming segment, I'll talk about the many sources you can use in science fiction and fantasy novels and games to help you play your romantic relationship role-playing game. But first, the bear's growl. Now, I haven't really explained what the bear's growl is, and for that I'm apologizing to you now. Basically, the bear's growl is my own personal rant about whatever I feel like ranting about. I suppose I should put it at the end of the show, so you can skip it if you want, but I do try to keep it nice and short. Yes, it's a bit of unadulterated opinion, a personal insight, that I hope you'll get something out of. So far, I haven't had any feedback either way about the Bear's Growl. So, write and let me know if you think I should move it from the first of the show to the last. My email address is bearsgrove at gmail.com. And now, the Growl. Tonight, I want to talk to you about honor. Honor is a common theme in fantasy and science fiction. Brave knights have it. Paul Muad'Dib had it in Dune. Although it's said that there is no honor among thieves, even pirates have a pirate's code. Okay, it's more of a guideline, really. But still. It's my belief that people are not perfect. They have the best of intentions, or they have wrong intentions, or they miscommunicate, or they operate perfectly logically on what is based on a foundation of error. I've certainly been dishonored myself in the past due to mistakes I've made, but I like to think that the best thing I can do in my life is to strive to regain my honor, admit when I've been wrong, and uphold what honor I have gained in the meantime. I think it's important to the tapestry of human culture and civilization that there be shining threads of honor, forming a silent but strengthening weave. People of honor inspire us to be honorable, even if they are people who don't really exist. And I think that's okay. Most of the time, people who are heroes are only that because we don't know them very well. If you ever have the chance to get to know someone you currently idolize, you'll discover they are very real human flaws. That's how life is. It doesn't matter that honorable folk aren't perfect. It is the time in which they are honorable that we should concern ourselves with. It is the moment when their spark of honor shines like a fire from within and warms each and every one of us. In dark times, I think that light, that honor... It's what we all need to see by. Live by it. Chart your course by it. And keep the fire alive however you can through games and stories, through your everyday life, through your own actions, by honoring your agreements and your commitments. Take that flame and spread it everywhere you can. Next up, the kids and role-playing segment. Kids Corner this week, I'm going to talk about how you might be able to organize and run your own live-action role-playing game for kids. I'm going to go ahead and assume a few things about the situation, if you don't mind. First of all, I'm going to assume that you've at least run or been part of running a role-playing game in the past. Dungeons and Dragons, GURPS, World of Darkness, whatever. I'm also going to assume that the kids who are going to play are between the ages of 7 and 12, roughly. I'm also going to assume that you're going to be running a kids' LARP at your home, probably during some kind of special event, such as a birthday party or holiday party, something where you have a group of people together in one place at one time. the first thing you need to do to set up a LARP at your own home is to to decide what role-playing game, what LARP you're going to be running, what system you're going to use. I prefer a system which is very close to the White Wolf Mind's Eye Theater system. I just adapt it for whatever it is I'm doing and not to steal from their copyright at all, but essentially they utilize uh, rock, paper, scissors as a means of conflict resolution, and they have various traits, and the traits all mean something, and each character has a different power, and the powers are acted out, or uh, people just know what they are, and the, the game does run well without much intervention from game masters because the players can resolve most of the conflicts themselves. I would encourage you to investigate the Mind's Eye Theater system and perhaps develop your game along those same lines. The other thing you want to do with this situation is you want to create characters For the kids in advance. Why do you want to do this? Well, for one thing, you're going to want to put story elements into the characters from the very beginning. That is to say, you're going to want to have some built-in character goals and motivations, built-in character conflicts with each other, um, some mysteries to solve and so forth and you're also going to want to be able to tell your guests, the people who are going to be playing in your LARP how they can dress and what they can expect so, you know, if my character, if my child is going to play a fairy princess at a LARP, I want to know that ahead of time so I can dress her up as a fairy princess or, you know, if she's going to be a rascal, then I want to dress her up as a rascal. Um, you know, I want to help out whatever I can. Now, some kids will forget, or their parents will forget, or it just won't be that important to them, and they just won't come in costume, and that's okay, too. I don't think that people should be required to wear costumes, but it's always a lot more fun when people do. Um, so, you've chosen your game, and you've written your characters. Now you've got. Once you have all the characters, you've you've got the beginnings of a story. Um, and realize that the art of running a LARP has nothing to do with creating a lot of different plot elements, but everything to do with creating interesting characters and giving them motivations that can create interesting plots and interesting things that are going on in the story. You don't have to get very fancy. In fact, it's probably not a good idea at all to be very fancy because you're dealing with kids, and kids like things to be fairly simple, although simple and stupid are not the exact same thing here. Um, You can make a simple plot uh, very interesting and very intriguing. Um, So, next step is to prepare your space. When you run a LARP, you have to realize that everybody is going to be excited. Kids get excited, they run around, they fall. One time I was running a kid's LARP and a kid fell after about five or six warnings that he shouldn't be running and he hurt himself and had to go to the hospital. This was a terrible situation, but it's something that you need to realize that The more that people run around and the more possibility there is for someone to get hurt, the greater the chance that it will happen. It's very much a Murphy's Law kind of thing. So what you want to do is prepare the space by making some role-playing areas that are safe, giving kids places to be. You may want to create some background uh, settings in your space if you have you know a dark cave in your space then you can hang cobwebs you know say down in the basement and that makes that that your dark cave or you can say that the living room is a forest or you can say that the kitchen is a castle wall you know it's really up to you and you can tell the kids um what they are and also put up signs so that people can um, remember what they are. And you don't have to do a lot to necessarily create the space. You don't have to go overboard. But you can definitely make it make it safe and make it interesting so that the people have a chance to sort of put themselves into the story, into the locations. Uh, I am fond of hiding objects. Uh, that might be interesting to the players in the space. It turns it into a sort of sub-game, kind of like Easter egg hunting. So that's kind of fun, too. Next, you want to prepare the game materials. Now, by that I mean you want to create an uh, envelope for each player that contains their character... They're a badge for their character Like something that you can use So that people don't have to guess who that person is Um, Because if they're not wearing a costume It's not going to be very obvious That someone's a werewolf If they don't have a costume And if they're walking around looking like a werewolf Then people will need to know that Um, Or say A troll Or you know I'm a magical dog Or whatever So um, that's important Getting all the game materials together ahead of time and putting as much as you can about the game and about what the player needs to know on the sheets ahead of time will help. It may not help the kids who are not as good at reading as some of the other kids, but uh, ultimately it will help keep the game on track. Now, we're down to the point of actually the night of the game, the the starting of the game what you're going to want to do is gather all the players together in one place and hopefully this is after maybe they've had a chance to run around and get some of their energy out so they can focus on you because sometimes it's hard for kids to focus about on things especially if it's seems to be like rules and this is this is kind of like the rules part of the story you start the situation by reviewing the rules and running through the rules with active participants so that they can understand how it's gonna all work and you can give examples. Then you teach everybody the method of conflict resolution that you've chosen, such as rock, paper, scissors or whatever it is that you've you've come up with. And make sure that they all understand the physical rules like, you know, don't run don't do any stunts, don't hurt each other, that sort of thing uh, and then you'll want to give them a starting story, like an idea of like why it is their characters are there and, and sort of set the scene for them and let them know what the background is, and then turn them loose, and the next part becomes just sort of keeping the story going, to keep the story going, you have to walk around, and maybe you'll want to have a storyteller character, somebody who is in the story as well as you know being part of your persona. Um, so you're both running the story and playing another character, or maybe you're playing two or three characters. One time I had a story where I was running, and I had different hats, and the hats that I wore would tell people whether I was one person or another. So uh, that's just another way to understand it. So I would go around and I basically had some plot points that I wanted to introduce from time to time. But most of the time, I was watching to see if there were players who had sort of wandered off and they have gotten into parts of this of the story off by themselves where they're just kind of sitting there and i look for these little sort of you know still areas in the game and i try to help move those areas along because that's where the game starts to bog down if not everybody's playing hopefully by this point your plot elements that you put into the characters will start to come out People will be acting, and they'll be using their motivations, and those motivations will Im- immediately cause some dramatic conflicts. There'll be some passing back and forth of energy, and basically it, it will start to become a real story very shortly after that. Um, one thing I would definitely caution you against, however, is allowing Uh, players to sort of gang up on another player that you know if you can somehow work something in or talk to take another player aside if you need to and give them some hints this is not about competition so the important thing here is to make it so that you are helping someone have a good time and everyone is participating in that process. So everybody's supposed to be having a good time, so everybody gets a chance to enjoy themselves. So definitely don't let those still areas go and be in the middle of things and be accessible. It's great if you have other adults who are helping you with this that they can also help. They can, um, you can break, you can be the rules, you can be the tiebreaker for the rules, you can Help keep the game flowing um, That's what's important That's what makes it fun So one, another thing I want to caution you against Is the fact that these kind of games Can go on forever And You don't want to do that What you need to do is have Set a set Goal as to where you're Wanting to take the game to And come to a definite Ending because one of the most frustrating things you can have in a story is to sort of have an open-ended story where you really don't know what's going to happen next and you're not ever going to play those characters again, and so it's kind of just pointless the whole evening becomes pointless so you definitely want to get come to some sort of end at least where maybe nothing you know depending on how the players uh, acted throughout the story maybe nothing actually happened or maybe something did happen and it was a good thing um, or is a bad thing so you just have to come to a definite ending Finally, um, I always give out prizes because I find that it anchors the moment for some people and it makes people excited. So if they know that they're going to get a prize for best role-playing or they're going to get a prize for the um, person who... I always give a prize for the person who helps everybody else have a good time. And I also give a prize for the best-behaved kid Because sometimes those are the quiet ones who are are not really in the center of things and uh, they deserve a prize too. So just to, to briefly review, the first step is to set up and give character assignments. The second is to prep the space and the game materials. The third is to start the game by reviewing the rules and teaching everybody the way to do conflict resolution. The fourth is to keep the game moving and involve everybody as much as you can. And the fifth is to come to a definite ending. And sixth, give out prizes that encourage people to play. And next up, we have the Game Designer's Workbench. But first, this promo from a podcast I think you'll really like. Hi there, friend. Welcome to the Dragon's Landing Inn. Come in from the cold and warm yourself by the fire. Wow, thanks a lot. (laughs) It's downright cold out there. If you're looking for something to eat, we've got a feast of ideas and advice for tabletop RPG players over there. Uh Uh-huh. And in the back room, we have interviews with gaming industry insiders. Uh, right. And out here in the common room, we have lots of good, hearty discussion about all kinds of RPGs and accessories. So, what can I get for you? One podcast later. Well
1: <laughs> <us>
0: <laughs> no, do <laughs>
1: no,
0: do little mugger bear wouldn't do us any harm. No little mug bear wouldn't do us any harm. Visit the Dragon's Landing Podcast at www.dragonslanding.com The Dragon's Landing Podcast is an hour-long gaming-oriented show I really enjoy listening to. They have many different segments from how to world build to the frugal gamer to answering a question a week. My favorite part, though, is when they get behind their instruments and sing some old Irish drinking songs. Give them a listen. And now the Game Designer's Workbench. And I'd like to welcome you to this special part of the Grove where I keep my workbench. Uh, there are many kitties everywhere around here. Uh, they come and go, they sit and uh, spread their napions around. It's wonderful. Uh, then over here I have my work desk and this is where the uh, various half-finished worlds are floating. and. Over here are my scrying orbs. These let me keep up with my D&D campaign. And, oh look, there's a bottle of pixie dust. It is sealed, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Uh, Underneath my desk, I have my trusty snow wolf. Her name is Carly. Hi, Carly. She manages to be both asleep and on guard at the same time fascinating. Hanging on the wall you'll see maps of every place in the magical countries I've created. If you ask I can probably give you a story wherever you put your finger on the map. Welcome to this place and tonight I'd like to talk briefly about the kind of tools I use as a game designer just to sharpen the saw as it were. As an added bonus all of these tools are going to be cheap or free you to use. The first kind of tool I'd like to talk about are our creativity tools, and the first one of those is the Chinese portrait. The Chinese portrait was brought into the gaming world through a game called Nephilim, put out by Chaosium. I haven't been able to track down its origins, but I can tell you that it definitely has been in use for some time in writer's workshops. I can't say for sure if the term is derogatory or not, but I'm going to choose to think of it as not. The idea of the Chinese portrait involves your filling in the blanks on a series of open-ended sentences. For example, if I were an animal, I'd be blank. If I were an aspect of weather, I'd be a blank. If I were a color, I'd be blank and so on, and you fill in the blanks as you go. If you complete these sentences in character, as it were, you'll be able to spur your creativity in thinking about where your character fits in the portrait. This, in turn, will help you to discover new and interesting points about your character you possibly hadn't known about until now. Next, I'd like to talk to you about another tool I use called a grid work or spreadsheet. You use a grid work as a means of filling in the information you know about a group of people, objects, or even countries without having to sit down and create them all sequentially, individually. For example, let's say you're creating all of the political factions that exist on a space station in one of your science fiction games. You start by labeling each column of the grid with a label to describe one aspect of the faction. For example, name, political leanings, lawfulness, resources, the name of the leader, influence with the stellar government, and do they have access to a starship is one whole column. Now you can go down the grid and with each row representing a separate faction, fill in whatever information you've already created about that particular faction. After you've got all the info you know on the grid, It's time to look for patterns and to fill in the grid, keeping in mind common sense and good storytelling. I tend to use a bell-shaped curve about such things. So, let's say I already know that there's a very rich faction, the star nobility, and there's a very poor faction, the homeless people on board the station. The rest of the factions are going to fall in between, resources-wise, so I can go ahead and disperse them that way along the rows. Be sure when you do this that you actually throw some curves in there, story-wise. It may be that the homeless faction, having found some discarded old starship, actually has access to a starship. Or it could be that the star nobility has gone secretly bankrupt and isn't as wealthy as we once thought. They're just good at being ostentatious and covering up their poverty. Fill in as much of the grid work as you can and you will have many full fleshed out ideas for your space station factions. Of course you can use this tool to create a group of elder vampires, design a list of magical treasures, or even define the countries in your fantasy world. It's an extremely helpful and very useful tool. You can use spreadsheet software such as OpenOffice's Calc or Microsoft Office's Excel, to help you fill in your grid work. And this has the extra benefit that you can sort the rows by various aspect columns to discover different and interesting patterns. Next week, we'll continue with yet more game design tools for you. Next up, we have the religion and gaming segment called Divine Inspiration. In the second of three special segments on religion and role-playing games, this week we talk about how to make your speculative or fantastic religions more realistic. Last week we talked about setting the theology or cosmology of your game's background so that you and your players have an idea of what they can expect from religion in your game. We talked about how cosmology can be expressed on a continuum with total acceptance of the existence of all kinds of deities on one side, and on the other side of the spectrum, totally a atheistic hard science sort of cosmology. This week, I want to go into the building blocks of what makes religion. First of all, you have to separate the beliefs or dogma of a religion from the actual practice of the religion. To a certain extent, each person who involves themselves in a religion decides which elements of that religion's teaching she will or will not agree to follow. As always with humanity, we might strive to attain certain ideals, but in practice do not actually do so. You must also separate out the aspects of a religion which revolve around its propagating organization. Its church, cult, corpus, whatever you want to call it, And those who revolve around spirituality, morality, ethics, and custom and law. Or, to put it another way, the political structure of the religion versus its philosophical structure. So, when you create your fantasy or speculative religion, you already have four aspects to concern yourself with, no matter what cosmology you may have. Dogma, what spiritual, ethical, and moral teachings the religion espouses priesthood, the structure and politics of the religious leadership, the priestly creed, which is the religious leader's own beliefs and practices, the faith and the faithful, what the body of believers actually believe and practice. Realize that these four different aspects of a religion don't have to be all in line with each other, and many times aren't. Next, I want to take each of these four aspects and speak about what you can do to flesh them out. It can be said that one of the services religion offers in our world is to help us answer the big questions, and that is primarily what our first aspect, dogma, is concerned with. Where did the world come from? Why was it put here? Who is in charge? Where do we come from? What is right and good? What is wrong and evil? Or are there just many shades of gray? What famous holy people have been part of our tradition? What did they teach and what were they famous for? How should we conduct our everyday affairs? What shall we do about money and charity? Who is considered an adult? Who is eligible for marriage? What kinds of marriages are there? Who is eligible for the priesthood? What rights and privileges does the priesthood have? Who is in charge of the church? Who decides what the church believes? What are the spiritual teachings of the church? Are there spiritual beings who either help or hinder the church or its believers? Is there a supernatural opposition to the church? Who are the enemies of the church? Who are the friends? What is the position of the church on other religions or deities? What happens when people die? Is there a different afterlife for the faithful? What is the meaning of life? These are big questions, but in order for a religion to seem real, they're going to need to be answered in the dogma of that religion. Realize that not every bit of dogma is available to the masses of a church. In fact, During the Middle Ages, religion was more of a sense of something that was done to you rather than something you really participated in. So your average, everyday worshipper will probably not understand the deep inner workings of your religion's dogma. The priesthood, and who leads the priesthood, is defined by the religion's dogma. However, that doesn't go into the actual role the priest or priestess in the religion. Are the priests divided up into separate orders or sects, each espousing a different part of the overall dogma of the church? Perhaps they're tied to a region of the world where it is their job to represent the church politically as well as spiritually. The beliefs and practices of the priesthood are primarily what a player character priest is going to be interested in it is important to be able to differentiate your character's belief from those of the others in your religion. Players tend to play characters who are not exactly conformists, so your character may choose to espouse different beliefs. But be warned, if your character strays too far outside of the dogma of the church, you could be considered a heretic. Of course, one religion's heretic is another religion's prophet or founder, And some religions are so open-ended that they don't even acknowledge the presence of heretical thought. The thoughts and practices of a priest are by their nature considered to be non-heretical in these kind of sects. Understand as well that there are many religions that have a totally non-hierarchical structure. In these religions, each individual priest or priestess carries with them their own authority and there is no overarching religious organization. These kind of religions tend to focus on a local village priest or tribal shaman, and that person dictates the dogma and rituals of the tradition. Finally, how the people actually worship and what they actually believe may be something that is wildly different from the dogma of a religion. A large part of this has to do with whether this is a religion they grew up with or one that they have had to convert to for whatever reason. Another thing to think about is whether the dogma of a religion fits in the everyday life of a populace. If the people are poor and the church is constantly demanding money from them, they aren't going to necessarily be too interested in providing charity to others even if their church espouses charity. Typically, the more popular religions make people feel better about themselves, give them a moral compass to guide their journey, and provide them solace during the hard times. Of course, in the fantasy world, there is a very real reason why people may wish to be part of a specific religion – magic. Divine magic, miracles, divine spells, prayers, or what have you, are typically healing and protective in nature and people can always use healing and protection. In a science fiction setting, membership in a specific religion might be required for access to advanced technology or knowledge. By now, I've given you quite a lot to think about, and none of it has gone into the precursor of religion of cosmology and mythology. Next week, I'll talk about a specific religion that I've created in my own fantasy world in order to give you insight into how all these elements fit together. Next up is the romance and role-playing section.
1: The Bear's Grove, just down the street from Moria around the corner from Callahan's, and not far from Reva territory.
0: In this section this week, I'm going to give you a lot of different sources for romantic role-playing inspiration. I'm not going to stop and give reference URLs for each one of them, but you'll be able to see those reference URLs in the show notes. First, I want to tell you about some really good fantasy and science fiction romantically inspired novels. The Cushiel trilogy by Jacqueline Carey is amazing. The story revolves around Phaedra, a woman who is both a courtesan and a spy, and those she both loves and hates. It's about how she would give everything to save her beloved homeland. It's got a lot of intricate political intrigue and some really sexy writing. Definitely this is not a set of books for kids. Phaedra, the main character, has something of a blessing or a curse. Depending on how you look at it, she experiences pain as pleasure. There are many romantic themes running through the novels, and the setting itself is incredibly rich and romantic, and I heartily recommend it. I've had some people say that they felt it started slowly, but I enjoyed the exposition of the mythology and history of the setting. Next, I want to talk about the Celtiad. The first three books of the Celtiad that were published, The Copper Crown, The Throne of Scoon*, and The Silver Branch, are masterpieces of science fantasy with a romantic bent, They were written by Patricia Keneally Morrison, the Lizard Queen, and Wife of the Fallen Doors rock star Jim Morrison. They are really incredibly beautiful novels, focusing on the events of an invasion war that perpetuated by the enemies of the Celts, a group of humans who supposedly fled Earth during the Dark Ages with someone who had starship technology, a person called St. Brendan the Navigator. They set up their solar system just like the Celtic Isles of Britain and Ireland, and their technology evolved alongside their spirituality and mythology. Magic and science are literally the same to them. Is a passionate and tempestuous queen, and her lover Gwydion, a wonderful male lead? I can't stop myself from sighing and wishing I could live in that world. Another set of books I could point out to you are the Liadan Universe novels by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. I gotta admit that these are basically space operas. The science isn't hard science, but it isn't stupid either. There are some mystical aspects in that there are people who are psychic. Where I started reading the Den Universe was a book called... Partners in Necessity, where a starship technician named Priscilla, who is poorly treated on one vessel, comes to live and work with a man named Sean Yoscalan. Sean, who is captain of the ship, shows kindness to Priscilla through his actions and through what he does not do, and helps Priscilla value herself more in the process. It's a wonderful story, and it's just the first in several in this book, and the other books in the series. I can't recommend them highly enough. There are plenty of other novels out there you can mine for clues as to how to conduct a romantic game. Just about anything written by Anne McCaffrey, Mercedes Lackey, or Lois McMaster Bejold has some lovely romantic aspects to it, and I heartily recommend them. Now I want to tell you about some of the most romantic role-playing games that are out today. The most romantic, in my opinion, is the game Pendragon, put out originally by Chaosium, but now under Green Knight Press. Hands down it wins because it has flirting skills. There are statistics on the character sheet for lust and honor and chastity. The game postulates that every player character is already handsome and or beautiful. The appearance trait is merely there as a means of comparing one gorgeous person to another. While it is true that the game as written nearly requires the players all be male, there are provisions for female characters already in the rules. When I play it, I tend to play a Mists of Avalon version modeled on Marion Zimmer Bradley's novel by that name. In this version, females have just as much importance to the Arthurian legends as the males, and sometimes more so. And there are such things as player character priestesses or a lady of Avalon. You can choose to play a female knight, even if it isn't strictly in canon with Mallory. Another romantic RPG is Vampire the Masquerade. Although one of the original developers swears that vampires can't fall in love, I think vampire is potentially a very romantic and sexy game. First of all, many vampires are pretty and sensual and romantic by their very nature. The idea of a creature who has to struggle to control its passion is very sexy and tragically romantic. In addition, there is an in game attribute called the Blood Bond, which can simulate the kind of feeling that a person in love has for another. If Vampire is too dark and gothic and sadomasochistic for you, then I recommend another White Wolf game Changeling the Dreaming. The whole idea of Changeling revolves around romance and dreams and wonder and beauty. What other game exists where you can make a romantic magical oath and have it actually affect the game world and game play? Many fairies are beautiful, clever, and sexy, and if you need more ideas as to how that could be, I encourage you to read Laurel Hamilton's books. Her vampire novels are very romantic and sexy, even if they are focused more on a vampire hunter than an actual vampire. Her fairy novels are beautiful representations of romance, sexuality, sensuality, and intrigue in a modern fantasy rapper. Of course, you can take any role-playing game and make it romantic. One of the most romantic games I've ever played are the D&D games I've played with my life partner, Cynthia, who you may know as Technomom. Why, I bet even my friend Carl could make GURPS romantic. No matter what inspiration you use, I encourage you to try adding romance to your role-playing and to try adding romantic role-playing to your relationships. You won't be sorry. Well, we've come to the end of another Bears Grove podcast. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening. I encourage you to come back next week for our Sowentide All Hallows Halloween show where we'll explore the dark side of the grove. I love feedback, good, bad, or even indifferent. Be descriptive. Let me know what you think about the podcast. You can do that by emailing me at bearsgrove at gmail.com or by calling the Bears Grove voicemail line at 206 bear or 2327 2327- Understand that if you call the listener comment line, you're more than likely going to be put on my show. So, let me know if you'd rather not be. Today's music has been, in the intro segment, we have Forest in the Morning by Fumitaka Anzai. For the Kids' Corner, the song Forest Bird's Fantasy by Trespass. For the Game Designer's Workbench this week, the song Innovation by Mark Haimonen. The music before the religion segment is called Goddess by Melissa Cox. Finally, the music for the bumper before the romance segment is called Airstream by G.org. And our outro music this week is a song called Coffee Shop by Small Fish, because everybody needs a little caffeinization. The Bear's Grove is brought to you by the Castle Caritas Studio, broadcast this week from a secret hideout in the closet of the Pet Librarian aboard the Dutiful Passage. It is presented for your pleasure under a Creative Commons 2.5 license. Attribution, no derivatives, no commercial use. Until next time, I am all joy to see you, and I bid you sweet dreams when you get them.
1: What do you do when you come unglued? You just have way too much to do. You're passing every ashtray and the butts fall in between. Life sometimes comes into focus when you stay up late and talk to friends that you don't know about the things you cannot see. Everybody needs a place where they can go and time you waste and coffee can be spilled on their blue jeans. Have that place for you where red is green and green is blue and nothing is exactly as it seems So come with me, join in the conversation Have a nice caffeine sensation Stay up late and figure out your life Put a sign up on your door that says you left the day before and won't be back until a week ago Wanna talk about religion, faith and love and intuition You wonder if my light bulb is unscrewed So come with me, join in the conversation Have a nice caffeine sensation Stay up late and figure out your life That might be nice